Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand humans? Why do my seats fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant, and Dave Ansell. So, if you have a bath and you want it full of bubbles, um, like you're a film star, you know, and you have one of those film star baths, yeah. how much bubble bath would you have to put in to fully bath? Depends where you live. Really? <laughs> it does quite a lot because it's very dependent on what kind of water you've got. Mm-hmm because the water around here has got lots of limestone dissolved in it because we live on top of chalks, and chalks are kind of limestone, so there's lots of calcium dissolved in there. It makes soap work very badly. It tends to form scums with soap, and even this kind of bubble bath won't work as well in hard water with lots of dissolved limestone in it compared to soft water. So if you go up to Wales or somewhere or Manchester where you're getting very, very soft water with very little dissolved calcium in it, Mm -hmm. then you hardly need any um, soap at all to get a good lather going, and you much less bubble bath to get the same number of bubbles. The other thing which helps a lot is if you put glycerine in the bubble bath. I'm sure this is not something you do yourself, but if they put something like glycerine in, basically a bubble is a little tiny layer of water, a very thin layer of water, um, with soap molecules on either side of it. And the water tends to run down through the gap between the two layers of soap molecules. And when you run out of water, then the film tends to collapse and the bubble goes pop mm-hmm. so if you put something like glycerin in there which makes it much thicker and slows down the water running down through the foam the bubbles will last longer so you have more time to make lots and lots of bubbles yeah. I guess the other trick they probably use is inject- injected air through a shower head or something at the bottom of the bath you produce an awful lot of bubbles very quick. Alright fair enough now then there's a good chance that we should have Dr Sarah here. Hello good evening Dr Sarah Good evening. There you are um, in your studio armchair with Dr Chris looking after the baby doing his duties Right, without further ado, we have uh, a few health questions that have come in. First of all, Hedra is 89 and has macular degeneration. She'd like to know if lutein would be of benefit. She's heard it can benefit or slow down the macular degeneration. Macular degeneration is quite a common problem. It's often found in smokers and basically people with it can't always see as well as they should be able to. Now we do know that a good diet, a good healthy diet is essential for our eye health and that's having a good balance of of everything in it really. Proteins, carbohydrates, fats and vitamins and minerals. Um, We know that lutein's found in egg yolks so if she eats eggs in her diet she should be getting some anyway. So looting could be a benefit? Could be, yes. All right, thank you very much. Okay, stay there, Dr Sarah. We've got some questions coming up for Dr Dave. Mike in Peterborough has asked, when the massive first stage of the moon rocket fell back into the sea in 1969, would it have created a huge wave? Good question. Although, I mean, the Saturn V was a huge rocket, um, the whole thing weighed over 3,000 tonnes. And the first stage, when it was sitting on the launch pad, it weighed about 2,300 tonnes, which is an awful lot of weight. But most of that was fuel 
because the whole idea of the rocket is um, you throw stuff that outwards down the bottom mm. and due to one of Newton's laws, if you throw stuff one way, you push something one way, it pushes you back. So if the rocket's pushing lots of its fuel, hot gases downwards, it gets pushed upwards. And so by the time it had burnt all the fuel, it would actually only have weighed about 135 tonnes. And it's a great big thing, maybe 30, 40 metres long. Mm. So although it, it's quite a big heavy thing, and it's probably going to hit the sea moving quite fast, probably a few hundred miles an hour, it's not nearly as heavy or big as it would be in the first place. I don't know how big a wave it would make, but it probably, if, if you're in a boat 100 yards away, a few hundred yards away from it, you'd definitely notice it and it'd be quite scary. But if you're any further away than that, I'd have thought that it's not going to be big enough to mm. actually, you probably wouldn't even notice it a couple of miles away. Because it's, I mean, even over 135 tonnes, something that big, it's not that much and so it's not actually going to make, it'll make a bit of splash but not that big a wave. Mm. Let's go back to Dr Sarah. Another Tony would like to know what a coronary angiography is. Right, well if we start with thinking about the heart as a big muscular bag which pumps all the blood around the body to all, all our organs, the brain and heart and lungs and kidneys and things. There are three main pipes or arteries supplying blood to the actual heart muscle itself because you can imagine if it's a big muscular bag it needs blood itself to be able to work properly. And a coronary angiogram involves inserting some dye through a vein in the groin and that dye then travels around the blood system through all the pipes or arteries and, and veins and you can then take pictures of the heart muscle to see how well the heart arteries are working and how much blood is actually getting to the heart muscle. So it'll tell you if there's a blockage there or not. And you may have heard of a condition called angina which I don't know if Tony suffers with that or if he's got to have one of these angiograms. But angina is basically a cramp of the heart muscle where there's one or more of the pipes to the heart muscle is blocked. And so you get a crampy pain, just like you'd get in your legs if not enough blood's getting to your legs when you're doing a run, say. So it's very similar. Mm. All right, that's answered Tony's question. Right, Dr Dave, there's one here from Daniel um, who's uh, listening. He says, uh, this afternoon he switched between microphone mode and tape mode on his hi-fi. He said, I put the volume of the hi-fi at its highest due to the music on the tape being very quiet. Accidentally, I forgot to turn down the volume when switching to mic mode and a big boom sounded. What caused that rather loud noise? It depends exactly how it's set up. When you get a big boom, and basically sound is a vibration in the air, the way your hi-fi system produces these vibrations is that you have something called a loudspeaker, which has got a big magnet in it and a coil of wire. When you pass an electric current through that coil of wire, then it will produce a force on the coil of wire, and it will move this coil back in and out, and then that coil of wire is attached to a sort of paper cone outside, which moves the air backwards and forwards and produces vibrations. So the way you normally make music that makes music is the ampl- um, your hi-fi system sends an electric current which goes one way, then the other way, then one way, then the other way, and so it makes this cone vibrate backwards and forwards, vibrates the air, and you get a sound out. And what sometimes happens is if somewhere you get a... If you suddenly change the voltage on this, on the speaker, you'll suddenly get a big current running through it and it'll suddenly move a long way. So if you take a speaker and plug it in and the uh, amplifier was giving out maybe half a volt, all of a sudden the whole speaker will jump very quickly and you'll hear a big thud. By the sounds of things, something similar happened when he was changing between the two modes. Uh, in one mode, it was, it was um, producing sound, but sort of it was vibrating around maybe mm. not zero volts. The other one, it was vibrating around one volt. And so all of a sudden, um, that sudden step in change in voltage produces a big force on the speaker, which produces a big thump. And that's what you hear. It moves it very quickly, produces a big vibration, and you get a big thump. 
Right, a big thump. Now, I'm not quite sure, Dr. Sarah or Dr. Dave, whether this is just one of you or both of you. Uh, Jackie in the Borders says, could high levels of calcium in a person be down to drinking a lot of water rather than milk? Sarah. There are some thoughts that possibly in hard water areas where calcium levels are higher, people might be possibly more likely to make kidney stones and things. I wouldn't say necessarily you get more calcium from water than milk. Because milk's very carefully designed to pack huge amounts of calcium into it. There's all, mm. there's all sorts of things which the uh, mother's breast does to, pre- to pack lots and lots of calcium in there so the baby can, uh, I guess babies need a lot of calcium to grow, do they say? They do, yes. It's quite important when you're feeding your baby. Obviously breast is best at the beginning if you can manage to do it because humans make the right sort of milk and the right consistency for a human baby. But later on when you start your baby on cow's milk from sort of six months onwards, it's quite important to give them full cream milk so that they get all the nutrients that they need and grow um, in the most rapid and best way. All right, okay. Um, Simon has said, um, if all animals, insects, germs, etc. were the same size and there was a knockout fighting, fighting tournament, bearing this in mind that they're all the same size, what would win? Would louse, whip, a polar bear, um, could a stoke defeat a herring, that kind of thing? Which animal would be an ultimate winner, do you think? Um, it's quite, diff- quite an interesting question, that one, because... It's a very, very unfair competition because when you get smaller, um, it's actually materials tend to get much stronger compared to the forces you can exert. So, for example, there's a wonderful story whereby if you drop a spider down a well, it won't even notice. I mean, a a rat will probably get a bit bruised. As you scale up to bigger and bigger animals, they get more and more damaged because the sort of gravity and inertia becomes much bigger and stronger compared to their size. So it would sort of depend on whether you were... If you're scaling um, small creatures up, you'd probably find that they wouldn't work for some some reasons. Like um, if you scale an insect up, it it wouldn't be able to breathe well enough. And if you scale, scale big, if you scale big animals down, then you probably find they were um, compared to, to they were just kind of scaled very wrong. But I, I would have thought that if you just kind of scaled them straight, and probably the small animals would be a lot stronger than the big animals. But I think it's a very unfair question. <laughs> Now, Hedra um, has uh, called back to say that she has a very good diet, lots of veg, fruit, meat, etc., and uh, a few eggs. She's never smoked. Hospital and opticians have said they can do nothing more for her. Would the lutein actually do her any harm? I wouldn't have thought so. And I mean, I think, you know, anything's worth a try, really. Mm. Yeah. Macular degeneration is, is awkward, really, because sometimes it's genetically inherited from your parents mm. and sometimes it just happens out of the blue and you're just unlucky to get it. Yeah. It's rather frustrating when you've got it, really, because there's not a huge amount you can do to cure it or improve it and it's just a case of trying to live with it as best as you can yeah. and cope with it. Um, but it certainly would be worth a try. Mm. Dr. Dave, there's a, a question that's come in especially for you here from Lucy. Um, she says, um, what's Dr. Dave's view on ghosts? 25 years ago, a friend of my, a friend of myself saw two children ghosts. I'm generally sceptical in general uh, about most things like this, unless I actually seem hard, hard evidence. I think there's various reasons why people might see ghosts. I mean, I've occasionally walked past the door and thought I saw someone inside there. Ah. If, especially if you've got some, you've got some interesting shadows inside the room, which I think is to do with the way, kind of the way we evolved. 
because if well, you know, thousands of years ago when we were actually living in a dangerous environment, if you walk past a door and there was a saber-toothed tiger hiding in there, then it's or, or the might the might or might not be a saber-toothed tiger looking in there. It's best for your brain to think, oh, there's a saber-toothed tiger in there because then you'll start reacting to it earlier, so you're more likely to get out of the way. So especially on the edges when it's sort of dim light with interesting shadows, you quite often see things which aren't there because it's you might like to see, if you jump out the way and there's nothing there, then it hasn't really done you much harm. But if you didn't jump out the way and there was a saber-toothed tiger there, then you could be in serious trouble. There's a couple of other interesting, there's been some interesting research recently about the effects of sound, in fact, infrasound, which mm. is very low frequency sound below the pitches which you can hear, so below sort of 25, 30 hertz. And if you play this at people, you get all sorts of strange effects. People start getting sort of chills up the back. Um, they start feeling very insecure and anxious, and kind of they just and sometimes and um, sometimes they get sort of feel that what's going on is very important. Mm. And a lot of they think that a lot of the places where people tend to see ghosts tend to have a high level of this infrasound, maybe to do with the way the building was designed. And so it kind of tends to help, and that's actually what the spooky feeling is. It's actually this low-frequency sound which you can't actually hear. Mm. They've also looked at big buildings like cathedrals, and they tend to be designed with quite a lot of this infrasound because yeah. another effect of it seems to be people seem to, if you sometimes you get a feeling that what's going on is very, very important, almost sort of semi-religious feeling, and this infrasound could be a lot to do with that. So I don't know, I'm still sceptical. All right, I'm so, all right. Um, Dr. Sarah, here's one here. Apparently scientists have learned that human noses are adapted by evolution to sniff out danger. Um, and in tests, and I don't know whether this is ethical or not, but volunteers' sense of smell became much more sensitive when they were given electric shocks. How scary is that? Researchers believe nature invented the system so we can recognise odours associated with a threat. So what does danger smell like, I wonder? I guess from an early age we get to know different smells and what's nice and what's not nice. Yeah. So you might you know, like the smell of a nice roast dinner cooking but you don't like the smell of your baby's nappy so much. Um, and I guess that's just an innate response to knowing what's, what it's safe to eat and what it's not safe to eat. Yeah. And if things smell horrible, at least our ancestors and we now know that you know what, what you can eat. Also, I mean, things like smoke in a fire smells not very nice and that would be a warning sign to us that mm. you need to get away from the fire. Yeah. It's quite fascinating how the senses all club together, don't they, and, mm. and give us all our, our signals. I think it's sort of associating, if you associate a smell with um, something bad happening, then that, that will stay with you for a long time. Chris found some research a week or two back um, about caterpillars. And uh, if you kind of if you kind of give caterpillars electric shocks near a um, near one kind of um, smell, then even by the time they, they when they turn into a butterfly, their whole insides have got entirely redesigned. They turn into a completely different creature. But even then, when they're a butterfly, they're still scared of the smell. And so I think it's a very probably a very very low level thing thing that's probably dating back from when we were very simple creatures that avoiding uh, that, that you kind of make very strong associations between smells and either good emotions or bad emotions mm. and so you either think this is a good thing to be close to close to or start running now mm. now then sue is on the line hello sue oh hello hello there um i believe you've got a question about a trap nerve yes it's my husband that's had a trap nerve since january the 6th so oh, nearly gosh. three months yeah and i just wondered whether dr sarah might know whether it is something that goes on for or can go on for months and even years or so or what he can do about it because he's in such pain all the time 
I, I guess the it. first thing to ask, Sue, is where is the trap nerve? Is it neck or back? It, or? Yes, it's, it's at the neck, and then it goes across to the right shoulder and down the right arm, but now it's gone down to the left arm as well. Right. And has he got any numbness or pins and needles or anything in the arms? In his right thumb. Right. That suggests that it's just one of the nerves, one of the three nerves that comes from the neck down into the arms. Right. Has he had any treatment for it so far? He, well, he's had um, altogether about ten osteopath treatments, um, mm-hmm. a chiropractor, um, he's had numerous tablets, he's had gels, pain machine thing. And um, the pain's there all the time, sometimes a lot worse than others. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes these things do last just a week or two and then they resolve themselves, your bones realign themselves after the chiropractic treatment or the osteopathy treatment. Mm. Um, and then you're a lot better. I, w- I wouldn't say necessarily physio's better than chiropractic, better than osteopathy. I think it's often a case of trying mm. one or two of them and seeing which works best for you. That's what he's trying. Because um, they've trying all got them all. their place. Yes, he's trying them all. Anything that's suggested, he's, he's doing. So I didn't know if you've got any other suggestions. Yeah. What well, does he work still? Yes, um, he did have time off. And what does he do? He's a sales rep, so he does have to drive, mm-hmm. which probably doesn't help does it the situation because he's yeah i guess maybe stuck in one position in the car at times and is he on a computer much he's tried to keep off it at home he's not on it for work but he's tried to keep off it at home because he thought that might sort of make it worse does he know what triggered it off did it just come out of the blue or had he lifted anything heavy or anything well he thinks it might be he went he started going to the gym and having had a heart attack last year and he started going to the gym, and he thinks he may have done something there. Mm. I mean, I guess if things aren't resolving themselves, it would be worth him perhaps popping back to his GP, and if he hasn't had an X-ray already, perhaps thinking about that. Well, he did mention that when he went to see him uh, a couple of days ago, and the doctor said it wasn't really, being as it was at the top, it wasn't really much use having a scan or an X-ray. I mean, sometimes an X-ray just tells you if there's a bit of arthritis in the neck or if there's a problem with the bones. Yeah. Yeah, can I just say, I had um, acupuncture when I trapped a nerve. It's taken, oh, he's had that. He's had that as well. That's, that didn't help. And I had, <laughs> he's tried everything. And I had, like, a gentle, um, what they call a creative massage, which then kind of, like, um, there's a little point in your thumb, there's some pressure points, and he can, there's a little bit that he can massage there, and that will give him some relief, but it drives you around the bend, and it's just a case of being patient and just trying everything it really yeah. is. I would certainly suggest if it really doesn't resolve itself in the next two or three months, perhaps chat to the GP again about x-rays or possibly a neurology referral. Yeah, thank you for that. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 
live and move to the UK.